Hello and welcome to the REORG Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leveraged finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, Seth Brumby, Deputy Managing Editor of Municipals at REORG, speaks to David Dowden, Senior Portfolio Manager at Mackay Shields, about the current state of fixed income, how the Federal Reserve's activity is impacting municipal bonds, and the tools available to investors to navigate a challenging rate environment. And as always, a weekly review coverage and a preview of what's coming next week. We'd also like to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment and complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, July 24. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Primary View, Reorg's weekly podcast on all things fixed income. I am Seth Brumby. Deputy Managing Editor at Reorg, covering the municipal bond market. Today, I have with me David Dowden from Akai Shields. David, before we jump into our discussion, tell me a bit about yourself. Oh, sure. And uh, thank you for for having me on, Seth. Uh, I am a a Senior Portfolio Manager here at uh, Akai Municipal Managers, which is a business unit of Akai Shields which itself is wholly owned um, business within the New York Life Investment Management um, group of uh, shops. Um, I've been here since 2009. Uh, Before that, um, I was um, most recently chief investment officer at FGIC, which used to be one of the big um, bond insurance companies. I've been in the municipal market since 1989. Okay, so you've seen pretty much every type of credit cycle and rate environment uh, over the past 30 years. So you have a lot of perspective. And I guess that opens up for our current conversation um, where we want to talk about imagining a fixed income portfolio that actually generates income. It's been a while since we've seen that. And tell me, uh, how thin has income been uh, prior to 2022? Sure, absolutely. And I think, you know, it makes sense to look back to 2019 and then into 20 and then into 21. What we've seen is that there was just this ongoing decline in yields, uh, an ongoing decline in credit spreads with, you know, a little pocket there due to um, to COVID in, in March of 2020. But away from that, uh, for many muni investors, it's been a cha- it was a challenging environment. They were struggling to find uh, opportunities where they could get what they were looking for, which was a reasonable level of tax exempt income. Okay, and if you could talk a little bit too about what yields were like, I understand particularly on the the, the short to medium duration. The curve. I mean, we basically had thirty, maybe fifty basis points of income for a lot of those portfolios. Yes. I mean, it it became pretty frustrating, I think, for a lot of investors. We watched as um, by 2021, you out to 10 years, we're looking at a relatively flat yield curve where yields got as low as around 30. You're absolutely right. Around 30 basis points, um, just kind of going out. And the, the thing with that is for investors, as you move from one to three to seven years to 10 years, that's where most of your interest rate sensitivity starts to accumulate. We refer to that as duration. 
And we see duration really, um, it's a very steep duration curve in that front end. So if you're not earning any yield and you're taking on all that interest rate risk, it's a, it's a relatively unattractive proposition. Okay. And that was certainly uh, the reality over the past few years until 2022, when we started to see inflation uh, and a rapid rise in inflation, and then the corresponding rapid rise in the effective fund rates from the Federal Reserve. Tell me, what was the market like last year? Sure. So, I mean, municipal bonds moved in line with what the general rates market did, and then it it underperformed from there. And I think we had, uh, you know, if we look at it from a 2021 into 2022 scenario, we had about 110, 115 billion of uh, flows into municipal bond mutual funds in 21. And then we watched as those investors suddenly faced with, you know, a decline in prices started to bail from the market. And we watched as 120 billion flowed back out. So the net result was that municipal bonds in general underperformed versus treasuries because we were starting to get hit with this very off balance technical condition in our market. Okay. So I guess just to summarize what we had leading up to 2022 was an environment of historically low rates. So you're not generating a lot of income. And then in 2022, when inflation and rates start to take off, you're getting hammered on the value of that portfolio too. That's absolutely right. And, you know, it's the type of thing where um, if everyone's rushing for the door at the same time, there's really no getting out of the way of it. So from a strategic standpoint, we looked at the market and our assessment of it was, okay, it's very painful to watch interest rates rise, but that creates opportunities too. And certainly one of the first opportunities that we saw in that was the capacity to start reintroducing income back into our client or adding to the income in our client portfolios. Okay. So uh, that became a, a major focus of our trading. Okay. So understanding that you're going to go through a lot of pain in 2022, you decide at that time to reposition your portfolio in a way that would improve the actual income levels for that portfolio. So how do you do that? In a couple of different ways. One way, the most simple way is the notion of a tax swap trade. And very simply in the municipal market, when we're doing tax swaps, um, imagine the scenario why I own a bond and, and you own a different bond. They're very similar in structure and price behavior. And we've both witnessed as our bonds have gone down in value. Well, we could hold on to that bond and hope for some point where interest rates fall and, and we get recovery, or we can do a trade. I sell my bond to you and you sell me the bond you own to me. Pre and post that trade, our portfolios look largely alike. Uh, as they did before. They haven't changed. But what has changed are two things. One, um, we've now recorded a realized loss, and we can carry those losses forward and use them against gains in the future. That's immensely valuable. And the second thing is we're buying the bonds in on the back end of that trade at a much higher yield than where we were owning the original bonds. So we're actually increasing the accrual rate of our funds. So that's just one one example of something that we started to do. And to give you a sense, I mean, in my entire career, last year was the busiest year I've ever had from a trading standpoint. As a complex, our trading activity was over 300% of where it was the previous year. 
And the majority of that trading activity was doing this type of trade where we were looking to increase the accrual rates across our, our complex. Okay. I guess just as an aside here, I remember looking at some of the trading data coming out of the MSRB and their data certainly backs up what you're representing anecdotally, which is it was the busiest year in secondary market liquidity that they've ever had, both for small lot trades as well as institutional size trading too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you look at those small lot trades, a lot of times what happens too is that um, take a complex like our own, we may own 50 million of a bond and we're selling that 50 million, but we own it across a series of accounts. Mm -hmm. So uh, it potentially shows up as a series of trades okay. when it's the one bond. Um, and what we attempt to do is make sure that um, the type of pricing execution we're getting and the benefit of this type of trade is accruing across all of our, our client accounts in an equitable way. Okay. So coming back to the uh, accrual of, I'm just going to call it a tax swap. Um, this to me is sounds analogous to in the corporate world, when you have a company generating operating losses, they can carry that operating loss forward into the future to offset future tax liabilities when they actually start making income again. Would you say that that's an appropriate analogy here? It is with some nuances. So for us, we're able to carry those losses forward in a mutual fund setting ad infinitum. Okay. And the benefit of that is several fold. One aspect of it is, you know, it may sound funny coming from a tax exempt bond manager, but we never want taxes to drive our investing decisions, okay. but they certainly weigh on them. If we're about to do a trade and it's going to incur a long term, a short term capital gain, um, and we can wait two weeks and make it a long term capital gain, that, that weighs in our timing decision. And the distinction there is that a short-term capital gain gets taxed like ordinary income. So now think about the loss. We book these losses, and now we have these losses going forward. And the benefit of that is that if we see a trade where we buy some bonds and suddenly they jump up in price, and we can take, you know, they they they've overnight or in within days, they're they're now fully priced. We can look to take advantage of that even though we're generating technically a short-term gain, because we know our net loss carry forward is going to offset that gain. The value of that, like any deduction, is the loss times the marginal tax rate. Given okay. where most of our shareholders are, blocking out an ordinary income tax liability is immensely value, valuable to our shareholders. Okay. So it sounds like uh, to, to abuse a phrase in finance, you guys built up a lot of dry powder coming into 2023. Um, I know that supply has been low, so uh, you guys maybe have your, your, your pick of the bonds out there in the market. Have you been able to deploy that dry powder this year? Um, to date, no, not really. I mean, those mm -hmm. losses, it's kind of interesting. Um, if we look at the market to date, the long end rates have actually come down a little bit. But largely, we're still under redemption pressure. So mutual fund redemptions have continued. Um, we're running at a pace of about one-fifth of the redemptions we saw last year. Mm -hmm. But it's still putting some pressure on, on our market. The distinction um, for this year is that supply has been relatively light as well. Mm -hmm. So it hasn't been truly damaging. But we certainly haven't seen a real run. And I think that 
you know, our market is very technical in nature. Supply and demand play major roles in valuation. Uh, I think talking to um, advisors, what we hear is that they're reticent to jump back in until they start to anticipate that the Federal Reserve is coming to a close on its its tightening regime. So we're not quite there. I think we're closer to the end than the start, certainly. Um, but that, that's going to hold up the market for a little bit longer. But the reality is, um, you know, uh, anytime we see volatility in the market where we get a bit of a sell-off, we're always looking to engage in these types of tax swap trades or or loss accumulating trades uh, in from a tax from an accounting standpoint because we know that you can never have enough of them. You can you'll always want to be looking for opportunities down the road to offset gains, and I think that becomes a very appealing feature for shareholders to uh, to look for. Okay, and when you're looking into the market and, and looking for opportunities to really jump back in to get new paper. Um, can you just discuss maybe a little bit about the supply that was available in 2019 through 2021 versus maybe the little bit that we've seen this year? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we can think about it in a couple different ways. Obviously, the bonds being bought back then were, were being bought at pretty rich levels, low yields. But it, it was also a function of structure. So for example, if we look at couponing, um, we saw a very heavy production of 4% coupons. This is very confusing for non-muni uh, investors. People who are, are used to talking about treasuries or corporate bonds don't really care what the coupon is. But in the muni market, it plays a, an amazingly important role because it speaks to gain loss. It speaks to uh, the potential for market discounts. So the production of fours really crowded out fives and we saw threes and twos as well. Um, and, you know, we struggled to understand who bought those up front. We've mm -hmm. subsequently learned the banks um, mm -hmm. and, and we've seen the problems that's caused for them. When we got about halfway through 2022, we started to see production of not just fives, which are kind of the typical coupon people look for in munis, but five and a quarters, five and a half, five and three quarters. And our thesis at that point in time was that we wanted to go after those types of bond structures for two reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, one, what we were seeing is that we were able to buy those bigger coupons without having to pay up for it. Actually, three reasons. Two, if we sold a 4% coupon and bought a five and three quarter coupon comparable maturity, we were instantly bringing down the interest rate sensitivity of the portfolio, what we call the duration. Okay. So that was a real benefit. And then finally, it was our expectation as that we got through this rate cycle, issuers would be pushing to move away from those big those big coupons because it's costing them. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, owning a five and a half or a five and three quarter coupon is beneficial because the scarcity value of those coupons will increase. And therefore, that creates a, a, a relative value opportunity. Okay. Yeah, I saw, I was covering the, Detroit deal a couple of weeks ago, and it had a 6% coupon for an unlimited general obligation bond. And you don't often see those in the market. And I, I was, I was wondering, I said, wow, I, you know, if it's a double B rated credit, but if it can get through the next few years after it restarts its contributions to its pension funds, uh, those bonds are going to be highly sought after. And I can't imagine many people trading out of them. 
Yeah, you know, Detroit's an interesting situation. I think I think the deal came right on the 10th year anniversary of the bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, the bankruptcy the bankruptcy was tough for a lot of investors um, because they didn't differentiate credit structure at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think coming out with a 6% coupon structure was a reflection of a market that's still you know, looking at Detroit and saying, okay, they're, they're in better shape today than they were pre you know, bankruptcy, but they still have some real challenges like many inner cities do. Um, but you also have to basically entice investors back to a name that had some real hair on it. So uh, clearly using that type of coupon structure uh, garnered a lot of interest. A lot of people's heads were raised on that. Yeah, yeah, it was certainly. I think the subscription was something like twenty times oversubscribed, and again, you don't often see that kind of performance. So, um, well, David, I greatly appreciate your time. It was really an informative, um, accessible, technical conversation, and uh, I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Absolutely, thank you very much. All right, take care. Bye bye. For in-court coverage, we take a look at FTX Group, 3M Company, AT&T Inc., National City Media and Center World, and Diamond Sports Group. This week, the FTX Group debtors filed a fraudulent transfer suit against founder and former CEO Samuel Bankman-Fried and former Alameda Research CEO Caroline Ellison and other executives. The plaintiffs seek to recover damages caused by the defendant's alleged fiduciary duty breaches and to avoid transfers valued at over a billion dollars made from February 2020 to November 2022. Diamond Sports Group debtors filed a sealed fraudulent transfer complaint against Sinclair Broadcast Group, Diamond Sports Topco, and other litigation targets this week. The UCC joined the suit saying the debtors' claims against Sinclair could be worth more than a billion dollars. Separately, in a bench ruling, Judge Christopher Lopez approved the Diamond Sports Group debtors' rejection of a telecast rights agreement with Major League Baseball's Arizona Diamondbacks. In the National City Media Chapter 11 cases, Judge David R. Jones denied AMC and Cinemark's bid to stay his decision approving NCM settlement with Cineworld debtor Regal Cinemas while AMC and Cinemark appealed the settlement. The judge likewise rejected AMC and Cinemark's request for a stay pending appeal of the NCM confirmation order. AMC and Cinemark argue that under the most favored nation clauses of their contracts with NCM, they should be provided with the same favorable terms that Regal is receiving under a new screen advertising agreement. The 3M-affiliated Aero Technologies debtors petitioned the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit for direct review of a bankruptcy court decision dismissing their Chapter 11 cases, a key ruling in a recent case law on the Texas two-step maneuver. In the June 9th decision, the bankruptcy court held that the Chapter 11 cases lack a valid reorganizational purpose because 3M-backed Aero is financially healthy. The bankruptcy court has already certified the case to bypass the district court and go directly to the Seventh Circuit, but under court rules, the Seventh Circuit must also affirmatively accept the case. This week, reorganized coverage of litigation tied to AT&T's lead sheath telecommunications cables in Lake Tahoe, pending in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of California. Recent Wall Street Journal reports asserting that such cables pose a nationwide public health risk sent telecom stocks and bonds plunging over concerns of future liability for lead contamination and water supplies. The Lake Tahoe action filed in 2021 is one of the few existing court proceedings related to the lead cable issue. Carvana, Frontier Communications, and Yellow Corp ran out this week's list of potential restructurings. Carvana entered into a transaction support agreement with 90% of its unsecured note holders that contemplates a series of exchanges of its unsecured notes into new secure notes, plus the issuance of at least $350 million of Class A common equity. 
Weird published an Excel model that enables users to run scenarios of different tender amounts and show resulting leverage and cash flow. For more information about Reorg's coverage of Carvana, please reach out to a Reorg representative. Frontier announced that a limited-purpose bankruptcy remote indirect subsidiary of the company would offer approximately $1.05 billion of secured fiber network revenue term notes. The notes will be secured by certain fiber assets and associated customer contracts in the Dallas metropolitan area. The company said it intends to use the proceeds to defeat certain existing indebtedness and for general corporate purposes, including potential investments or expenditures such as capital expenditures and research and development in line with Frontier's fiber expansion and copper migration strategies. Two Yellow Corp operating companies, Yellow Freight and Holland, have failed to make contractually required contributions to the Central States Health and Welfare Fund and the Central States Pension Fund for June 2023, according to a post on the Teamsters Union Facebook page. The payment was due Saturday, July 15th and must be made by Sunday, July 23rd to avoid interruptions to benefits members. Yellow has sued various unions to attempt to enjoin an impending work stoppage. Top red stories this week included Fourth Circuit upholds best wall litigation injunction shielding non-debtor Georgia Pacific to send excoriates Texas two-step a shell game to manufacture jurisdiction. Primary markets stay busy with loan extensions. Reorg launches European A&E tracker as borrowers increase use of processes since Q1 2022. Successful pushback to new assembly in 2029 curtails access to portability, reduces value leakage. Aldrich pump debtors seek revocation of ACC's derivative standing to challenge Texas two-step transactions based on allegations of lack of financial distress in dismissal motion. Core and main credit agreements highly permissive given increased EBITDA. Ryman refinances credit agreement restructures collateral package. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with The Week Ahead. Welcome to The Week Ahead. My name is Kate Thomas. A longer schedule of this week's events, including earnings releases, can be found on the Reorg website under America's Week Ahead. Here are a few highlights. The Lucky Bucks Opco debtors start the week Monday morning pushing forward with plan confirmation. If the prepackaged plan is confirmed, the Opco debtors would reorganize through a standalone transaction. The Opco debtors face two objections, but say they are working to resolve these objections ahead of Monday's hearing. Notably absent from the hearing agenda, the Holdings Debtors Plan. At a June 30th hearing, Judge Karen Owens put the non-operational debtors case on hold and ruled that the case would be converted to Chapter 7 after the Opco plan goes effective. Holdings only creditors, pick note holders, have objected to the Opco plan. The pick note holders warned that the plan's exculpation provisions could impair the only assets in the holdings estate, which are potential claims related to the pre-petition payment to insiders of a dividend from the sale of the pick notes. On Tuesday, the benefit technologies debtors are scheduled to seek approval of their disclosure statement. The official unsecured creditors committee has drafted a letter outlining its concerns with the plan release provisions and wants the letter included in the vote solicitation packages. The committee maintains that the debtors have not investigated or evaluated potential claims that would be released under the plan. On Friday, the Best Wall debtor is expecting a ruling on motions to dismiss its Texas Two-Step Chapter 11. At oral arguments in May, the official asbestos claimant committee argued that the case must be dismissed because bankruptcy courts cannot exercise jurisdiction over financially sound companies under the U.S. Constitution. The debtor responded that there is no such thing as constitutional subject matter jurisdiction. The debtor also called this latest argument an improper repackaging of the committee's two prior dismissal motions, which were both denied by the court. 
two individuals also sought dismissal of the case on bad faith grounds. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, including a packed schedule of earnings releases, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website. Have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week and see you next Monday.